That's Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And if you want to turn on to um, the second reading. So 2 Peter 1 verse 12 through to chapter 2, verse 3. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories, when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. This is God's word. Thank you for reading. Well, let me say good morning. And do keep that second reading open from 2 Peter, the letter of 2 Peter. It's our second week looking at this short letter together. And today we consider verses 12 to 21 of chapter 1. Let me pray as we begin. Our Father God, we thank you that your word makes our hope secure. We pray, therefore, that as I speak... As we together, all of us, listen to your word, we would hear your voice pointing us to your son. For his sake we pray. 
Amen. Now, friends, this morning I want to persuade us of the one thing that will make us stable as Christian people. That's my job this morning, to convince us of one thing, just one thing, that will make us steady, able to navigate our way through all the questions and decisions, trials, temptations of life, and stay Christian in them. I don't pretend that there aren't complex questions, so questions of how I use my money, how I express my sexuality, how I raise my family, how I run my business, how I plan career progression. Lots and lots of questions. We could multiply them, and they're complex questions. But I want to persuade us this morning of the one thing that helps us steer a steady course through those things and stay Christian. Just one thing. And this one thing we'll get to in verses 16 to 21. And let me tell you up front what it is. It is the truth that Jesus comes in power. Or rather, the truth that Jesus will one day come in power. He'll come with all the power and glory of God. Now, that doesn't seem like much of a thing to steer us through all the complexity and uncertainty of life. It doesn't seem that that's a guide to keep us steady through all that we face. And it seems unlikely, an unlikely key to stability. Maybe in, um, maybe in the way that Bletchley Park was an unlikely key to the Battle of the Second World War. I recently watched the film Imitation Game about the Enigma code-breaking machine that was based at Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire. And if you could imagine in 1938 taking the dog for a walk in the fields of Buckinghamshire and seeing them put a perimeter fence around Bletchley Park and putting up a barrier and lots of activity, and you'd never have thought that what went on inside there would lead to the key to the outcome of the Second World War or to its shortening. You'd never have thought that it was a strategic thing um, from that and uh, the front line, in a sense, would be a much more significant place. And yet, people who went in there every day, people who really saw what was going on, who knew about Enigma, they knew that actually there lay the key to the battle, to the war. And in much the same way, this truth that Jesus comes in power, that he will come in power, it's a really strategic thing. It really matters. It's the key to our stability. And we'll need to go inside, as it were, and see why that is. And we'll do that in verses 16 to 19. But before we do that, uh, I want us to see that stability, your stability and my stability, is what's at stake in this little letter of 2 Peter. Just have a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 11. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 10. At the end of chapter 1, verse 10, Peter writes that the Christians may do these things in order that they may never fall, lose their stability. Even though, chapter 1, verse 12, you already know them, you're firmly established in the truth you now have. You're steady as it is. But he writes to make sure they stay that way because, chapter 2, verse 1, there will be false teachers among you. Chapter 2, verse 3, they'll exploit you with stories. They'll make things up. They'll invent things. They'll call themselves Christians, but they'll exploit you with stories, chapter 2, verse 3. And if you have a look at chapter 2, verse 14, part of what they do is they draw away, they seduce, they entice unstable people, unstable Christians to make them unsteady. And then if you flick over to chapter 3, verse 16, right at the end of the letter, Peter says, since you've been forewarned, 
since you've been forewarned, or rather, since you already know this, sorry, verse 17, um, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. In other words, lose your stability. So, so this letter of 2 Peter, we have in it a battle between two sets of words, Peter's words and the words of the false teachers. And so we're in the midst of this battle, and there are two sets of words that we need to choose between. And, and what's at stake is our stability, our staying steady, our being steady as Christian people. And Peter says today in our passage that there's one thing that is the key to our stability, the truth that Jesus comes in power. But uh, let me just pause there for a moment, because actually before we even get started, it seems that we've got a real problem. There's a real problem here. Peter says that we should listen to his words. In this great battle for stability, we should pick his words. Why should we listen to his words? Why should we, we privilege his words? It's a bit of an issue here. I mean, maybe if you're not a Christian, you say that's precisely the thing with you Christians is that you privilege the words of dead men from the first century as if they should tell us how to live in the 21st century. It seems an odd thing to do. Why did dead men's words from the first century trump what people around us think we should do to live, what we think we should do? Why should these words from the first century trump the words of the 21st century? Well, Peter's going to persuade us that uh, in this battle for stability, there is one key thing to remember. Do you see, just have a look, first of all, in verse 14. Peter's a a dying man, or he knows that he's about to die. He says, I know I will soon put the tent of this body aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. But I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you'll always be able to remember these things. He says, I do want you to listen to my words after I've gone. They do decide how you should live even after I've gone. And the reason is, in verses 16 to 19, it is God's sure word that Jesus will come in power. It's God's sure word. It's no fairy tale, but it's God's word that Jesus will come in power. Just come with me to to verse 16. Peter has said, look, my words should guide you after I'm gone because my words didn't come from me. Verse 16, we that is the apostles, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what Peter's talking about in verses 16 to 18 is one event. You might have recognized it as Camilla read it. It's the transfiguration. It's an event that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can look it up later. And uh, it's the moment in Jesus' ministry where actually things have reached quite a turning point. Jesus has just told his followers, his disciples, that following him is going to mean losing your life in this generation. Following his words in all the areas that we could think of is going to mean losing our life, dying to self. So all the things we could think of, how we use our money, express our sexuality, raise our family, run our business, and so on and so on. We put those things up for grabs and we follow Jesus' words. And that's really hard because in this generation, Jesus says that's going to mean uh, a difficult life. It's going to mean losing life, much as it cost him. And, and then he takes them six days later up a mountain and he's transfigured before them. 
They see him in a light they've never seen him in before. His face shines like the sun. His clothes are gleaming glorious white and light. And they hear words from God. And then they go down the mountain. That's what's being described in verses 16 to 18. That's what Peter's talking about. Now, why take us there? Peter takes us to the transfiguration because it's a preview. It's a preview of the second coming. It's a preview of Jesus coming in a way we've never seen him before in power. It sometimes happens, doesn't it, before a film goes on general release that uh, the director will arrange an exclusive preview. I don't know if anyone's ever been to one of those. Has anyone ever been to one of those? An exclusive director's preview of a film. Simon's been to one of those. Which film was that, Simon? Okay, okay. So anyway, it's very exclusive if you're invited to one of these things. Talk to Simon afterwards about what it's like. But, but in a sense, that's what Peter's talking about. It's, it's like a preview, an exclusive preview of something that before it's made generally public, before everyone sees it, he's invited to get a glimpse of what's going to be seen, of what reality is. It's an exclusive preview. And the preview he had was all about one thing. Jesus coming in power, with all the power and the glory of God. Just come with me to uh, verse 16. Peter says, um, that's what this preview was all about. It was about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he witnessed on that mountain, when he went up that mountain with Jesus, was, verse 16, the majesty, that's what he was an eyewitness of, the majesty of Jesus We saw Jesus in a light we'd never seen him in before. And uh, all the words that he heard on the mountain pointed in one direction. From God, they said, this is my son. This is the son of God. And we know a little bit about God's son from from our first reading from Psalm 2. To be God's son was to have all the power and prerogative of God entrusted to you. All the power to rescue God's people, all the power to judge the nations. And so here we see God's majesty titles actually apply to his son too. Actually, those words, this is my son, this is my son in verse 17, they're picking up that very language from Psalm 2. The son of God receives all the power and authority of God himself. And this was the preview that Peter saw. It was all about one thing that Jesus, the Son of God, will come in power. That's what the preview was of. But uh, there's another thing to notice from this preview, this exclusive preview. It was a director's preview, if you like. It was an authoritative preview. So uh, in those same exclusive previews that are arranged, occasionally, and this is really exclusive, is if the director's there and uh, the director stands up during the exclusive preview or maybe at the end of it, and says what the film was about, says what they had in mind as they directed it, tells you, if you like, the authoritative interpretation of the preview. Otherwise, we usually go to the cinema and we all tumble out of the cinema with friends. We say, what did you think? Oh, well, my favorite bit was this. For me, it was all about the war. For me, it was all about the romance story. Or, Well, I'm not sure that was really the message of the film, but when the director stands up in the exclusive preview, they give the authoritative preview. And Peter says what he's reporting is it's not his take on things. He's not giving his opinion. It actually is the director's opinion, as it were. It is God's himself. So just have a look with me and see that all the words Peter's giving to us actually come from God himself. Verse 17. 
Do you see that um, when Jesus received honor and glory, where did it come from? From God, the Father. Not Peter's words. Verse 17, Peter's words originate with God. The voice came to Jesus, not from Peter, but from the majestic glory, a power title for God. Verse 18, Peter says, we heard this voice that came from heaven. My words to you are, in fact, words from heaven. They're God's words. So, what does this mean? It means that the preview that Peter says we must know, we ought to know, is that actually everything that he's saying points to just one thing. The majestic son, the powerful son, Jesus Christ, is coming. He'll come, and we'll see him in a light we've never seen him before. But Peter says, I've seen it. And he says, that's not my take on things, actually. All my words come from one origin. They come from God. This is God saying this. So these words of Peter come from one origin, and they are about one subject. The majestic son is coming. But what's more is that that Peter isn't just saying his words are all about the majestic son, the son coming in power. He says something else at the beginning of verse 19. He says, the whole Bible... All the Bible writers that you can think of were all talking about the same thing. Verse 19. And we, that is the apostles, or all Christians in the apostolic era, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. In other words, the the prophets, the the Bible writers of the Old Testament, and the apostles, the, the, the Bible writers of the New Testament, well, they all agreed. They were all talking about the same thing. That the Son is going to come in power wasn't just the topic, the subject of a little bit of the Bible for a little bit of the time. It was what all the Bible writers were talking about. We saw that in Psalm 2, an example of that. The prophets and the apostles agree. Now, in a sense, that was obvious up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because who else was up there with Peter, James, and John? Who else was up there? Moses and Elijah. Moses, who always stands for, for the law part of the Old Testament. Elijah, who always stands for the prophet's part of the Old Testament. So there's the Old Testament represented. And and then to complete the convention of Bible writers, if you like, you've got the apostles. They they represent the New Testament. So all the Bible writers, old and new, are gathered up there in the mountain as if to say, yes, all that we've written is about the same thing. All our words are really about the same thing. The Son of God is coming in power. And not only that, but But Peter claims that it's not just that his words come from God, but all the Bible writers' words come from God, Old Testament and New. So do you see in that verse 20, we'll come to it in a few minutes, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that too was obvious on the Mount of Transfiguration. So that Elijah and Moses and the apostles, Peter, James, and John, they're they're up there in the mountain as if to say, well, actually, our words are all about one subject, the Son of God coming in power. And our words are all ultimately from one origin, from God himself. It is God who gives his authoritative take on things. Let's... um, Let's just pause a moment there and and think why it is, begin to think why it is that this truth, that Jesus comes in power, this truth that's backed by God himself, 
why that should make us steady, stable, why that should be a a sure guide, something that that keeps us steady as we go through life and stay Christian. Well, Well, I think it is that, in a sense, it's as important for us as it was for Peter and the apostles before they went out on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, to follow Jesus is to lose our life. It is, if you like, to refuse to be guided by our own interests, what we think we want, uh, even what our family think we should want, even what our society thinks we should want and have. It's to refuse to be guided by those interests and instead to place our life, all our decisions, all those things that we thought about, into the hands of Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus says that is to lose our life now because those words will clash with our culture. Those words will even clash with what we want. And you see, no one will ever do that. No one will ever stay steady and continue in that unless they also see Jesus in this light, unless they see Jesus transfigured, unless they know, unless we know, that the one we've put our lives into his hands, unless we know that, if you like, he wins. He will one day come in power, and it will be seen that we've done well to follow his words in this generation. We'll be vindicated. We'll rejoice at his coming. And uh, it's a bit like uh, in Bletchley Park when... um, uh, when people went in there, the very few who went in there, what did they glimpse? They glimpsed that in that Enigma code-breaking machine, there was the key to the, the shortening of the war, the winning of the war even, uh, might be to overstate it, but, but it was critical for the battle. They realized that they were, in that sense, on the right side. And they knew it there in a, a more certain way almost than they could have known it anywhere else in Western Europe, than they could have known it on the front line, for example. And, and the thing was that it told them that the battle was assured, that they were on the winning side. And that's the same. When we get this preview, when we're invited into this preview that Peter gives us, we realize that actually Jesus is the one who comes again in power. He will come and vindicate our following of him. And it will be seen publicly on that day. Now, now Peter does describe for us in verses 19 to 21 how this truth but more practically, how this truth helps us steer a steady course through life and staying Christian. He sums it up in, um, in verse 19. He says, pay attention to this word of the prophets and the apostles. Pay attention to it. It's a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says, precisely because it's God's word that that Jesus will come again in power, we have a sure light that will guide us through a dark world steadily until we reach a new dawn, the return of Jesus Christ. And uh, just have a look at the beginning of verse 19, because we have on either side of this instruction the, the reasons we've already seen. So at the very beginning of verse 19, do you see, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. So In other words, the the whole Bible is talking about the same thing. The whole Bible agrees. It's all about the powerful coming of Jesus Christ. And then on the other side of of verse 19, we have 20 and 21. And we're given the other reason we've seen, which is that the whole Bible comes from God. It has its origin in God himself. It's authoritative. And precisely because it's um, the majestic God speaking in the Bible, precisely because it's about the majestic Son coming, Verse 19 in between, Peter says, pay attention to it as to a light shining 
in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so I want us to to think about our response to these verses this morning by dwelling on those images Peter gives us. First of all, we're to pay attention to the word of Scripture as a light in a dark place and a light until the day dawns. We'll look at each of those images in turn. So first of all, we're to pay attention to it as a light in a dark place. Notice Peter doesn't stop with pay attention to it. He's not saying read your Bibles. You do read your Bibles, but that's not what he's saying here. Now, all the false teachers that he's talking about in chapter 2, they read their Bibles. The best heretics always have and always will. He's not saying read your Bibles. He's saying pay attention to it. Read your Bibles as a light in a dark place. It's how you read it. It's how you treat the Bible when you come to hear those words. And I want us to to beware a, a couple of different views of treating the Bible that we find not just in the world, but in the worldly church. And the first is this, that many people treat the Bible like a light in an already light place. The Bible is a light in an already light world. So um, I recently read uh, of someone who described themselves as a progressive Christian. They're, they're influential. And, and they said, well, what we have in the Bible is, is one of the world's great wisdom traditions. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's helpful. It's helpful. It's a helpful light. But there's lots of helpful lights. There's lots of places we could go for answers. And so it's right that as we discuss how we should live in this day and age, what we should do, how we should live as Christians, well, it's right that we shouldn't just consult the Bible. It's useful, it's helpful, but we should go elsewhere too. It's a bit like uh, having a, a lamp on in the living room during the day. Well, maybe in the early hours of the morning it's useful to have, but you could switch it off without much great loss. There's other sources of reliable light. There are other sources of reliable instruction about how to live. But Peter doesn't say it's a light in a light place. He says it's a light in a dark place. But, but there's another version of how people treat the Bible, and it's worth us thinking about it because I think it'll become increasingly common, which is to completely reverse what Peter says. Peter says the Bible is a light thing in a dark world. But increasingly in our culture, in our generation, the Bible will come to be seen and is coming to be seen as a dark thing in an enlightened world. So there are debates and decisions that we will face and our society will face in which people say to go back to the Bible, to use the Bible in that discussion, that's to take us back to a very dark place. I mean, in fact, in our world, we're an enlightened world. Look at it. Look now, we've got marriage equality. Why would we go back to a dark place, to a Bible that says that marriage is lifelong union between one man and one woman? Why would we do that? And increasingly, increasingly the Bible will be seen not as a light and helpful word, but as a dark, a wicked thing, when in fact where we are now in society is enlightened. And Peter says precisely the opposite. Peter says, no, pay attention to the Bible as a light in a dark place, a light shining in a dark place. And the reason is because he's already told us that it has its origin in God. It's a light in a dark place because what we have in the Bible is qualitatively different, completely different in origin from anything else we could find, either with the words we say or the words others would say. 
It's of a superior origin, and therefore it is a light that we can trust in a dark world. And so the God who sees beyond cultures, through cultures, the God who sees beyond time and through time, is able to say authoritatively what is best for us. He alone sees that clearly. And so we have in him and in his words a light that will guide us through a dark world. And so we not only trust divine words because they're from God, but we distrust human words. We distrust human words. We understand that there's a fundamental unreliability about human words because there's always in any human heart a mixture of desires, a mixture to please self and to do what I want to do because I want to do it. And Jesus says that's a fundamentally unreliable way to live. It leads ultimately to judgment. If we're left to ourselves, it ultimately leads off to judgment if we follow our own selfish desires. And so we're to trust divine words and distrust human words around us. And so it's, it's worth me asking this morning, when did God in Scripture last disagree with us? When did we come up sharply against what God said and, and find a clash there between what he said and what we wanted? between what he said and what our society wanted and wants for us. And though that is really hard when it happens, let me encourage us that that is a good thing. That is what it feels like to be led by a light in a dark place, to be steered and guided by God's reliable light through a dark world. Let me encourage us in that. That is not a sign of failure. That is the word of God doing its job, leading us in a dark place. But the second image Peter uses is that this light, this light of Scripture, leads to a new dawn. It's a sure light until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, verse 19. You see, it's it's not just a word from the majestic God himself, but it's a word about the majestic sun coming. And and that's what's being described in this sentence. When it says that until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, he hasn't just chosen some flowery language. No, this morning star, this star rising, is chosen from one of the prophets. It's chosen from Numbers, the book of Numbers, and a prophecy there, Numbers chapter 24. And there, the star rising, the morning star rising, is the Messiah of the people of God, the one who will come from the people of Israel. And it's a terrifying sight for the peoples around. It's a terrifying prospect. He will rescue his people. He'll rescue Jacob. And he will judge all the nations around, those who oppose God. And yet here, do you notice that though it's a terrifying, wailing sight for God's enemies, it's not so for the Christian. Do you see what he says? He says, no, that day when the morning star, that is when Jesus returns, when the day dawns, that eternal day dawns, Jesus arrives in power and he's seen in a way we've never seen him before. When he arrives, do you see that the morning star rises in our hearts? It's as though when, when Jesus arrives, there's a reflection, an analog, an echo in our hearts. And the reason is, for Christian people, is that that day is also our hopeful day. We hope in that day. On that day, we will be rescued. We will share in the joy of that new dawn. We'll be vindicated in all the ways we follow Jesus' words in this generation. We'll be vindicated on that day. 
Yes, the morning star rises, and it rises in our hearts. It is the hope and the joy of the Christian person. And so Peter is saying that a dawn is coming when the cost and the struggle of following Jesus' words gives way to a dawn of joy and vindication. So I don't pretend to know individuals' battles, the ways in which you're finding it hard and costly to follow the words of Jesus in this generation. But, but please know that, that actually there is a new dawn coming. There is a day coming when the Lord Jesus returns in power and we'll be vindicated. We'll be shown to have done the right thing in following Jesus' words in this generation. We're going to, in a few minutes, we're going to share a meal together that does many things. We look back to Jesus' death, to him being a suffering Messiah, but we also look forward. It's a meal that we're to keep sharing until he comes in power. It's a visible word. And we've seen this morning, Peter has told us that actually there is, there is one thing that will keep us steady. It is that truth that Jesus comes in power. And the whole Bible testifies to it. It's a sure light. It's the only sure light that will keep us until that dawn. Let me uh, pray for us as we finish. Our Father God, we thank you for the joyful prospect of seeing Jesus in that glorious, powerful light. We thank you that that day will be our joy as the morning star rises in our hearts. And we pray, Father, that you would steady us, please guide us, and through our life, through all the decisions we face, through all the complexities, through the mixture of competing desires that we have, Please guide us with your sure light in your sure word. Lead us, we pray, to that new dawn. For Jesus' sake, amen.